Chapter One of Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. Chapter One. Like some great silver pink fish, the ship sang on through the eternal night. There was no impression of swimming. The fish shape had neither fins nor a tail. It was as though it were hovering in wait for a member of some smaller species to swoop suddenly down from nowhere, so that it, in turn, could pounce and kill. But still it moved and sang. Only a being who was thoroughly familiar with the type could have told that this particular fish was dying. In shape, the ship was rather like a narrow flounder, long, tapered, and oval in cross-section. But it showed none of the exterior markings one might expect of either a living thing or a spaceship. With one exception, the smooth silver-pink exterior was featureless. That one exception was a long, purplish-black, roughened discoloration that ran along one side for almost half of the ship's seventeen meters of length. It was the only external sign that the ship was dying. Inside the ship, the Nipe neither knew nor cared about the discoloration. Had he thought about it, he would have deduced the presence of the burn, but it was by far the least of his worries. The ship sang, and the song was a song of death. The internal damage that had been done to the ship was far more serious than the burn on the surface of the hull. It was that the internal damage which occupied the thoughts of the Nipe, for it could, quite possibly, kill him. He had, of course, no intention of dying. Not out here. Not so far, so very far, from his own people not out here, where his death would be so very improper. He looked at the ball of the yellow-white sun ahead, and wondered that such a relatively stable, inactive star could have produced such a tremendously energetic plasmoid, one that could still do such damage so far out. It had been a freak, of course. Such suns as this did not normally produce such energetic swirls of magnetohydrodynamic force. But the thing had been there nonetheless, and the ship had hit it at high velocity. Fortunately, the ship had only touched the edge of the swirling cloud, otherwise the ship would have vanished in a puff of incandescence. But it had done enough. The power-plants that drove the ship at ultra-light velocities through the depths of interstellar space had been so badly damaged that they could only be used in short bursts, and each burst brought them closer to the fusion point. Even when they were not being used, they sang away their energies in ululations of wavering vibration that would have been nerve-wracking to a human being. The Nipe had heard the singing of the engines recognized it for what it was, realized that he could do nothing about it, and dismissed it from his mind. Most of the instruments were powerless. The Nipe was not even sure he could land the vessel. Any attempt to use the communicator to call home would have blown his ship to atoms. The Nipe did not want to die, but if die he must, 
he did not want to die foolishly. It had taken a long time to drift in from the outer reaches of this sun's planetary system, but using the power plants any more than was absolutely necessary would have been foolhardy. The Nipe missed the companionship his brother had given him for so long. His help would be invaluable now. But there had been no choice. There had not been enough supplies for two to survive the long inward fall toward the distant sun. The Nipe, having discovered the fact first, had, out of his mercy and compassion, killed his brother while the other was not looking. Then, having disposed of his brother with all due ceremony, he had settled down to the long, lonely wait. Beings of another race might have cursed the accident that had disabled the ship, or regretted the necessity that one of them should die. But the Nipe did neither, for to him the first notion would have been foolish, and the second incomprehensible. But now, as the ship fell ever closer toward the yellow-white sun, he began to worry about his own fate. For a while it had seemed almost certain that he would survive long enough to build a communicator, for the instruments had already told him and his brother that the system ahead was inhabited by creatures of reasoning power, if not true intelligence, and it would almost certainly be possible to get the equipment he needed from them. Now, though, it looked as if the ship would not survive a landing. He had had to steer it away from a great gas-giant which had seriously endangered the power-plants. He did not want to die in space, wasted, forever undevoured. At least he must die on a planet, where there might be creatures with the compassion and wisdom to give his body the proper death-rites. The thought of succumbing to inferior creatures was repugnant but it was better than rotting to feed monocells or ectogenes and far superior to wasting away in space. Even thoughts such as these did not occupy his mind often or for very long. Far, far better than any of those thoughts were thoughts connected with the desire and planning for survival. The outer orbits of the gas-giants had been passed at last and the Nipe fell on through the asteroid belt without approaching any of the larger pieces of rock and metal. That he and his brother had originally elected to come into this system along its orbital plane had been a mixed blessing. To have come in at a different angle would have avoided all the debris, from planetary size on down, that is thickest in a star's equatorial plane but it would also have meant a greater chance of missing a suitable planet unless too much reliance were placed on the already weakened power generators. As it was, the Nipe had been fortunate in being able to use the gravitational field of the gas-giant to swing his ship toward the precise spot where the third planet would be when the ship arrived in the third orbit. Moreover, the planet would be retreating from the Nipe's line of flight which would make the velocity difference that much the less. For a while the Nipe had toyed with the idea of using the mining bases that the local life-form had set up in the asteroid belt as bases for his own operations, but he had decided against it. Movement would be much freer and more productive on a planet than it would be in the belt. He would have preferred using the fourth planet for his base. Although much smaller, it had the same reddish, arid look as his own home planet, while the third planet was three-quarters drowned in water. 
but there were two factors that weighed so heavily against that choice that they rendered it impossible. In the first place, by far the greater proportion of the local inhabitants' commerce was between the asteroids and the third planet. Second, and even more important, the fourth world was at such a point in its orbit that the energy required to land would destroy the ship beyond any doubt. It would have to be the third planet. As the ship fell inward, the Knipe watched his pitifully inadequate instruments, doing his best to keep tabs on every one of the ships that the local life-form used to move through space. He did not want to be spotted now, and even though the odds were against these beings having any instrument highly developed enough to spot his own craft, there was always the possibility that he might be observed optically. So he squatted there in his ship, a centipede-like thing about five feet in length and a little less than eighteen inches in diameter, with eight articulated limbs spaced in pairs along his body, each limb ending in a five-fingered manipulatory organ that could be used equally well as a hand or foot. His head, which was long and snouted, displayed two pairs of violet eyes that kept a constant watch on the indicators and screens of the few instruments that were still functioning aboard the ship. And he waited as the ship fell toward its rendezvous with the third planet. End of chapter 1